I'm Jess O'Cullohan, and welcome to the AudioCraft podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded on the lands of the Darug people and on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land. In this feed, you'll find all the recordings from the AudioCraft Podcast Festival, so you can relive your favourite sessions from 2020 and give the wisdom shared by your audio idols a closer listen. In March 2020, the AudioCraft team's last in-person meeting for a really long time was with our programming committee. With little hope that the city wouldn't be heading into lockdown, we discussed what was shaping the audio space at the time and in the future. One discussion that left a mark was around risk. What does risk sound like? How does it feel to take one? And how do we make more room for taking risks in our storytelling? Also, who defines what's risky or safe in a story, in a career and an industry? That discussion inspired this session. You'll be hearing five audiomakers give provocations on the theme risk. I'm going to welcome our first speaker, Patrick Abood. Um, (laughs) There's Patrick. Um, (laughs) So Pat is an investigative journalist, a presenter and producer working with the Project TV, Audible Originals and ABC Audio Studios. Pat founded The Feed on SBS and he's the 2020 Jesse Cox Audio Fellow. Take it away, Pat. Thank you so much, Jess. Um, Yeah, it's really lovely to be invited to talk um, at AudioCraft. I um, I was planning to do a little entree in my uh, risky business costume a la Tom Cruise with a white shirt and underpants and just letting you know I have this image on my phone to uh, keep me um, inspired for the session and remind me of all the uh, crazy risks that I have taken across my career and I'm still taking. Um, it's a really interesting provocation when um, Jess first called me about this and we sort of had a chat through how um, I would approach the idea of risk-taking and how that's, um, you know, formed and shaped the the work that I've done over the last, well, more than a decade now, um, getting old. Um, but I kind of want to rewind back to where this idea of risk was really sort of embedded in my mind. And it's quite a funny story. I mean, when I finished school, I said to my dad, I'm Palestinian Lebanese from a very sort of conservative Arab family. And I said to my dad, um, I I really want to be a journalist. You know, I want to tell stories. I want to um, travel the world and sort of, you know, uncover things that other people might not. And his response was, well, that's pretty risky. And I only remembered that when... um, I got this call about this session and, um, you know, the provocation of, of, of risky business. And his response after he said, well, that's risky, was, you know, I won't support that. If you go and study law or you go and study engineering, I'll definitely support that. And so that was a really the first big risk that I took um, in my sort of storytelling journey because if it, journalism didn't work out for me, my dad would have been right and I did not want that to happen. Um, so thankfully it did work out and it really did work out for me because I took risks very early on and I can only talk about that in retrospect now, I guess, because I obviously you know, have been able to reflect on where some of those decisions have led me. And very, very early on, my first kind of real job, um, you know, making content or storytelling of any kind was um, through a program called Alchemy on SBS radio many, many years ago. It was late night radio. I don't know if anyone in at the festival remembers it, but it was a great kind of um, foray into storytelling. It was a great way in because Lisa Main, who was the executive producer at the time, was just a champion and I adore her and I owe so much of my, um, I guess, uh, you know, courage to take risks to her because she encouraged me to do that really, really early on. Um, I had no kind of experience in in audio making. I didn't know how to use it. It was a dad at the time. I had no idea. It was the first kind of time I was doing it um, and I was still studying. And I always thought that I would go into kind of filmmaking, a documentary sort of filmmaking. And um, the way I landed that gig was because I had made, um, a, you know, a, a doco and that, she was impressed by and then sort of 
you know, we had conversations and she said, come in and try this audio thing. So the first sort of story that I pitched to her um, was a piece about this group of late night um, streetcar races out in Western Sydney where I grew up. And I'd known that this was happening for ages. And I really was intrigued by the fact that there was one person in particular, one character, um, her name was Lenny and her nickname was Queen Bitch. And she would get paid to drive these kind of hotted up cars for this kind of, you know, a bunch of different young men across Western Sydney who were obsessed with their cars because she was a really great driver. And they used to bet and there was sort of a money-making syndicate. It was an incredible story that I'd heard through people that I knew out where I lived. And, again, Lisa said to me, um, her response was, well, that's really risky. And there's that word again that um, my dad first brought up when I told him that I wanted to go into journalism storytelling. And when she said that, she said, that's great. And the fact that she said it's risky and empowered me to kind of take the risk, I didn't have you know, I hadn't done really any sort of deep research. I just had this kind of hunch that it was going to be a really strong story if I was allowed the time to go and investigate this world, you know, to try and infiltrate this world, to get access um, and to, you know, to to tell a story in a way that um, I was kind of teaching myself to do along the way. So there was a whole lot of risks involved in that too because there were no real rules at the time. And because that was my first real um, you know, sort of foray into to storytelling and making something that other people would hear on the radio, even though it was late night and I'm pretty sure my mum was the only person listening um, and a whole bunch of other night owls that, you know, were intrigued by these sort of strange um, parts of society that that clicked over and worked after dark. Um, anyway, went out and did it. And, I mean, if I think about it now, there's no way that I would have probably, you know, launched into it had I known all the things that I know now about going into an environment like that, the level of risk was huge. I didn't know whether there was a story. I didn't have any real kind of, um, you know, assessment of the danger in the situation or I was jumping in cars that were speeding really fast and all that sort of stuff. But it was enthralling and it was such a, a great feeling to know that I was kind of living on the edge of this community and then at the same time taking people from outside of that community inside the, their world. And all of the decisions that I made through that process, I was going out from like midnight till, you know, 4 or 5 a.m. over three or four weekends. And the only way that I, that I got in there was that I knew Lenny, this driver. She's the one that sort of took me in. So imagine all these guys were, who's this dude with a microphone and a little recorder and like, what the hell is he doing here? Um, there was even risks in, in just getting access to the community so I didn't know that they were real sort of like um I didn't know I didn't understand the stakes in taking those risks risks at the time I just wanted to tell this exceptional story so not having that in the back of my mind I think really emboldened me to just do it you know and and take the risk essentially and dive deep and the result of that ended up being a piece that I'm still really proud of to this day and it kind of set up the ethos that I continue to work with around, you know, why I choose the stories that I do, um, the way that I approach them in terms of format and style and trying to push the boundaries a little bit. Um, that's also really risky because there are formats and formulas and structures set up in storytelling for a reason because they work. Um, anyway, I'm being told that I've got two minutes to go. I, I wanted to just basically draw back to that initial example of that story and all the processes around it, because I think at the moment where we are bringing us forward, there's such a lack of risk taking and it comes from the top down. A lot of EPs, a lot of sort of, you know, um, decision makers and, and people who are in charge of editorial don't really allow a lot of younger storytellers the time to take that risk to like say, I've got a hunch about this thing and I want, I want to go and investigate, I want to spend some time. We don't really, we're not afforded that anymore. And I think that the result is that we're not seeing, um, you know, the, the breadth and depth of risky kind of storytelling that we could in Australia. And I would love to see that change. So I guess it's a bit of a plea to, you know, remind people to never be afraid to go to an EP or go to someone um, in charge and pitch something that is a risk that's a risk on, you know, even if you haven't done the sort of deeper research that you need to have the brief and prepare 
the, the prepared brief to give to that person. Trust in yourself enough that if there's a really good story there, take that person with you on that journey and eventually you'll get the opportunity to go there and it will help you make those decisions um, in the field when you are wondering whether or not it's too risky to do something or not. Because for me, risk is what drives pretty much everything I do. If I feel like, of course, it's a lot more strategic and calculated now and, um, you know, you don't do something for the sake of being dangerous or risky, but I think sometimes you have to go against your um, inner uh, inhibition that tells you, no, don't do that and actually just do it. And even if someone says no, maybe go and do it in your own time, go and experiment with it in your own time and explore it. Because what it does is it empowers you to see that you can actually do something and show the person that said no, that it can be done. So I guess I just wanted to bring up that initial example because it really did help form, um, you know, that sense for me that telling stories in unique ways and finding unique stories is about taking risks. And you need the people around you to take those risks with you. So the more that you make and prove that it works, the more that you get, you know, the opportunities and the privilege to go and do that. And then, you know, many years later going and founding a show like The Feed, that was a huge risk as well because that was all about pushing format. And never did I think that that would still be on air. It's like I think it's in its seventh season now and I've moved on from the show, but it's still going gangbusters and doing great. So don't be afraid to take risks is what I kind of want to leave everybody with. I think it's imperative to break break away from the mold and, you know, not be so um, worried about whether or not it's going to lead to an actual story or a piece of content or a thing. Sometimes taking that risk and going down that rabbit hole, going on that journey will lead to a whole lot of other stories that you might pursue later on, you know, and that's worth it. It's always worth it. Um, it's never never worth taking a risk if you put yourself in any danger. It's never worth taking a risk if, you know, you're putting anyone else's life in danger or, you know, for the sake of taking a risk. It really has to be um, in order for you to make something in a way that maybe hasn't been done before or make something where you look at it and you think that has now empowered me to go and do something else in a new way that I never would have thought of doing before. And that automatically opens up your mind to just thinking of story ideas that you, that you probably normally wouldn't because you start getting access to these sort of disparate um, peripheral worlds. So, yeah, take risks, don't be afraid. And um, I am really, really grateful to be sort of diverting from screen-based media into the audio world again in the last sort of 12 months. It's been incredible. Um, I'm loving the projects that I'm making and I can't wait to, uh, you know, unleash <laughs> those um those projects in the next few months and into early next year. And you'll be able to hear a lot of those risks that I have taken in that process, hopefully. Enjoy well, the, the audio. The audio world is very excited to have you back. Thank you so, so much. And, um, and yeah, enjoy the rest of the festival. Thanks so much. Thanks, See ya. Pat. Um, and so I'm going to introduce our, um, our next speaker after that wonderful provocation to kick us off. So risk is really subjective, um, and I think we saw that in Pat's um, provocation. We saw what is um, risky to our grandparents may not be so risky to us. Um, and I think that, <laughs> but I think that if most people heard the pitch for the next podcast we're about to talk about um, before it existed, they'd probably, you know, shrug their shoulders and say, oh, "Yeah, that's that's risky." Um, but that's because Slaughterhouse Road is the first Australiana romance horror musical podcast that I've ever come across. Um, and, and I'd like to introduce um, its creator and writer, Jess Hamilton. Um, so Jess is a writer and audio producer. She's giving our next provocation. And in 2019, she independently wrote and produced the musical audio fiction Slaughterhouse Road. And um, as I was saying to these guys earlier, she um, we interviewed her in character as a cow last night. So this is nothing. This is very straight and narrow for Jess. Um, but, yeah, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Jess. Um, I'd first like to acknowledge the Narragoo people who are the traditional custodians of the land by the Snowy Mountains, where I'm speaking to you all from today, and to pay my respect to the long history of storytelling in this big land. Um, and a massive thank you to the Audiocraft team for creating this virtual space. I'm feeling really starstruck sandwiched in this hour between 
some very important figures in the audio industry. So I'm just going to treat this like that breather playlist you get between big sets at a music festival while I tell you about making an Australiana romance horror musical podcast. Act one. Welcome to Slaughterhouse Road. Let me take you down Slaughterhouse Road, just a little town somewhere on the coast. Take a seat, grab an ale, and let me tell you a tale of bangers and mash, an abattoir, and honey for sale. It's 7am and for the past three hours we've been driving down the south coast drinking really strong coffee and listening to horribly cheesy country music. We pass a street called Slaughterhouse Road and a saucy cow wrapped in pink glittery sausages dances her way into my car. There really should be a country music musical about this street, I decide. So I start writing. Tammy and Jimmy two young lovers are dying to break free of their small town. Tam's mum's a beekeeper and Tammy sells honey out the front of their house. Jimmy's mum Rhonda runs a local pub and she makes the best bangers and mash in town. And she set Jimmy up with a summer job working for Greg who runs the abattoir down Slaughterhouse Road. How did it go? Yeah. Which get even better when we realize that Claudia's cello kind of sounds like a really sad cow. I've got to say, we're all very amateur musicians, so this sounds pretty horrendous, but it's so much fun. And the more these songs unfold, the more that I want to hear the sound of dusty roads and fresh mown lawns, kookaburras and cowboy boots hot pink glitter and a saucy vengeful cow. Act two, falling head over heels. The only thing standing in the way of Tammy and Jimmy's big dreams is money. Tammy's got her eye on the cash prize at the pub's open mic night, which should be just enough to get her up to Tamworth Country Music Festival. And Jimmy's planning to double his efforts mincing meat down Slaughterhouse Road so he can Sorry, join her. Okay, boys, come on. The ABC announced a million-dollar podcast fund, so I send Jimmy and Tammy their way, and somehow this strange little tale makes it through to the final round. But I've got no fiction or music or sound design experience I can show them, just a whole lot of enthusiasm for a weird idea that I really want to bring to life. They explain that while they'd love to hear an Australiana romantic horror musical podcast, it's just a bit too big of a risk to take a punt on. So I jump in. I record my friends at their houses or in my car and I send my dodgy garage band demos to my brilliant friend Pete who turns this into this immortalising Claudia's sad cello and our slaughterhouse jam. I keep pitching it around to mostly silence, but if it makes someone smile along the way, it's just enough to keep going. Act three, the open mic night. Got a couple of years. Okay. Hello, baby, chips and gravy. The open mic night arrives. Oh, yum, yum, Tammy's nervous as all hell. Greg's been mincing meat for days and Rhonda's pub is looking bloody lovely. All my mates gather around me and my recorder, drinking beers in the kitchen and yelling words of support to Tammy as she gets up on stage. Tammy, that's our cover up when you're famous, Tammy. My sister risks her own budding music career to play the part of Tammy and she even ropes in her boyfriend for a late night bedroom recording unexpectedly. Can you do the day rounder again, please? 
G'day, Rhonda. Maybe one more time. G'day, Rhonda. It's just getting a bit too loud. G'day, Rhonda. And then can you just almost if you're talking to a cow? My friend Mark patches his hand repeatedly into a microphone while three women watch on squirming. <laughs> um, oh, my God, I'm going to my pants. An engineer I greatly respect gives me advice on doing sound design on the cheap. Chris Magilton, the creator of Among the Stars and Bones, generously dedicates his whole lunch break at Audiocraft to telling me how he made spacecraft foley out of a tin shed. And I stumble into the most supportive community of audio fiction makers through a Facebook group run by Aaron Kyan and Lee Davis Thalburn, Thalburn, where it seems like limitless time and resources are shared for nothing but the love of audio fiction and support for anyone else sticking their head in the game. If you like what you do you want me to say yeah like that? Just say it how you'd say it. If you like what you hear, tell a mate who likes snags or cows or open mic nights down at the pub. Or what have or you. Or what have you. <laughs> okay, okay. You actually wrote that down. Okay. <laughs> See you next time. Okay. So that's a bit awkward. <laughs> okay, let's do, let's do it again. This is my friend Sam and we're squished inside his cupboard. But I finally finished the thing. I put on cowboy boots, hang meters of homemade glittery pink sausages around a room full of friends and strangers who come to listen in the dark, and they all moo at the end. Our ideas might be really odd. They might attract a really niche audience, and even more so if they're Australian-specific. But if we don't experiment and have a crack, we're never going to know if there's somebody else out there who's been waiting all their lives to hear the revenge of a cow turned into a musical radio play. I don't think that this project should have received public or private funds, though I wish I could have afforded to pay my mates a little more than I did. But making it independently let me have complete control over how it sounded, who I worked with, what I could do with it later. It was weird, but it was really fun and I learned so much. So at the very least, next time I pitch a gory musical somewhere, I can say I've got the experience. It's also not the most earth-shattering story, but I'm still not going to spoil the ending except to say that Tammy resolves not to let the safe life get in the way of busting out of town and chasing that golden guitar. Everybody ate and they said it is a great world. Everybody's eating. They're loving that meat. They're all salivating. Because it tastes real good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jess. That was brilliant. Thank you. Um, I'm going to introduce our next speaker. So our next speaker is Renee Richardson, who, for whom it is uh, first thing in the morning, um, and I'm going to to add her to the stream now. So hi, Renee. Hi. <laughs> um, thank you so much for waking up and immediately joining us at AudioCraft. Um, <laughs> Renee is based in London and is the founder and CEO of Broccoli Content and the producer of number one shows, including The Receipts of One Extra and About Race with Rennie Echo Edo Lodge, which um, is an incredible podcast that rocketed to number one very recently, um, which is, is very exciting. I think um, it's something everyone should go listen to. In 2020, very recently, Renee created the Equality in Audio Pact with her Broccoli team and has been signed and it's been signed by over 200 audio companies and broadcasters. And if you haven't read the pact yet, um, check it out and really advocate for your workplace and the places you work with to sign it and act on those pledges. Um, it's a really incredible initiative. And, um, and Renee's going to talk a bit about risk. So over to you, Renee. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, there was a magpie by my window. That's why I saluted it. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, I'm going to talk about risk because I have always been a risk and I really think that it should be, there's nothing, everything in the creative industry or every industry apart from, let's say, funeral homes and taxing, um, it's a risk. Nothing is guaranteed. And I think with um, creative industries and the um, people pretend they know what's going to be a hit. So um, it's a risk if it doesn't involve a cis white man it's a risk if it's not a familiar story it's a risk if it doesn't have a celebrity in it it's a risk if it's an independent company versus a, ma um, a you know a major company and they're not risks everything is a risk major companies um you know make shows that aren't necessarily hits it doesn't mean they shouldn't have taken the chance to um take um to make the show 
And so I think that risk needs to just be rebranded as chance because when you hire someone and you know they're from the let's say risky list, you risk risky list, sorry, you would say, I'm gonna take a chance on this person because you see a chance as a positive thing rather than risk is negative. So I think we need to stop calling things that are different risks because that puts a negative connotation on it. Like I said, my I'm I am a risk. I've always been a risk. When I got my first job in um when I worked in a talent agency, I started in a post room. But normally, in order to work at a talent agency, you need to have, um, you know, a bachelor of um, bachelor degree, usually in media or English literature or history, something like that, because literary agencies are always or in the UK part of the talent agency. Um, and I didn't have that. I don't have that. So me getting a job, they were like probably thinking, uh, this is a risky candidate but really they took a chance and I did well and I rose up the company um I was of risk when I got my job at Drum Republic I was against two there was me and another candidate the other candidate on paper had all the experience that was needed worked in multiple production companies had um you know all the right connections I had kind of worked my way up a talent agency so I had all the right connections as well but I didn't have the official qualifications that she had so I was deemed more risky but they took the chance on me and I again did well there and then with my company now I am not the most um qualified or experienced producer I got into audio five years six years ago after 15-ish years in film and tv so there are way more um experienced producers than me and so Sony do it doing a JV with me, investing in my company, that would be on to wider people deemed as a risk. But again, it's them taking a chance and seeing that actually you can establish people. It's better to find the diamond when it's covered in like mud and rocks and you know, and you it grows and shines and you compress it and then it becomes the diamond later than you just working with the diamond now because it's more expensive we always have to you always have to try and think i just think it's more exciting to discover talent early and to work with them and to be part of their journey than to just always try and do the what people think is the safest option if i didn't get my opportunity with sony i'm not saying that the equality pact wouldn't exist because it probably would because it i still would have done it but i don't know if it would have taken off as it did because people wouldn't have known who I was or people just wouldn't have listened to me as they hadn't been for years and so by taking like these risks or chances on people you are just making the industry more diverse and richer with different experiences because we all shouldn't be from the same background we all shouldn't have the same qualifications we all shouldn't have the same work experience in this industry that's kind that's boring that is that would be the risk of the longevity of the industry because I think we just need to stop calling things risks because it's really it really can like if you you're a risk when you're a minority in this industry you're a risk when you're um telling a different story and that's that shouldn't be right for audio because audio is so accessible to um people like it's available you know especially podcasts available to anyone with um online with the internet and then if you provide transcripts um it makes it even more accessible to people with hard, who are hard of hearing or can't hear and the stories and the talent that you can discover with podcasting more than any other uh, medium is should be we should be taking more chances chances are positive um they are seen as you kind of adapting your skill to like oh look at me I found like this new person I just think we need to stop calling things risks and putting people in boxes because in the UK for example I live in the UK um there's a big um theme of podcasts being made by comedians who are talking to their comedy friends because it's seen as safe or um you know the celebrity talking to their celebrity friend again that is safe with not the medium is slowly 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 evolving in the podcast area because nobody wants to take the chance to make something different there's hardly any um audio documentaries made there's hardly any um that barely any people of color or minorities being at the forefront or in the, um produce, being able to get the opportunities 
um, to make the shows because everyone is like, if you're not mainstream and white, you're seen as a risk. And I think you need to stop doing that because we're not we're not risks. Um, we are different. That's it. I think we need to just embrace the differences of what can make audio richer and what can make audio just a long lasting industry that, as in the new one that's coming up with podcasting and then make it evolve and let's not get behind and stuck in these boxes that everyone has created previously because the world has changed and it's we're, con we're currently in the massive, massive change that we haven't seen before. And we need to be able to adapt. And just the things that could work before, they can still work, but it doesn't mean that different things won't work. And we just need to stop calling things risks. Stop calling things risks. Thank you exactly. so much. Thank you so much for <laughs> Thank joining you for having me. <laughs> Thank you, bye. So next up, we have Sarah Dingle. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Um, so I had the great pleasure of producing audio investigations with Sarah um, when she was a producer with Background Briefing. Um, Sarah's a dual Walkley awarding, award winning reporter and presenter with the ABC. She's currently writing a book about the fertility industry and she's someone who really knows a good story when she sees it. She um, backs her hunches, con convinces everyone to take a risk on whatever story I'm she's I'm so down. sorry Jess. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, and then but then and in my sentence, then she pays that risk off um, with incredible, tenacious journalism. So I'm really excited to hear her um, speak about that process today. And um, yeah, take it away, Sarah. Okay. Um, well, thanks, Jess. I'm so I'm a long format journalist, um, and consuming long format journalism is something that's really, really delicious. Whether it's a a podcast or a podcast series or a TV documentary or a long read. But the thing about making something that long is that the stakes are really, really high because you never know if your idea will go the distance, particularly in investigations. Um, now, I should say that I'm not a freelancer and freelancers in general have it tougher because they may have their own personal finances tied up in the success or otherwise of a long format project. Um, but when you're in-house and you have to make long format stories again and again, Often it's, it's quite hard uh, for different reasons because each idea has to sustain and each idea has to work. And you somehow have to have the idea for the next one as soon as you finish the first one, even though the first one was probably all-consuming. So I thought I'd outline the story cycle that I go through and how I manage the risk at each stage because there are definite stages and I personally find that I just go through the same arc each time. So in, in the first stage, there appears to be little risk because everything's fresh and new and exciting and you've got quite a lot of adrenaline and you want to talk about your new idea with everyone. And the more you find out about it, the more excited you get. The possibilities just seem endless. The risk is at this point that you will commit to something which seems wonderful, but which ultimately doesn't have enough dimensions to it to do what you want it to do. Say it seems like a really great idea full of really wacky characters, but you haven't realised that perhaps each character more or less tells you the same thing. You can't make a 30 to 40 minute documentary out of that. So the risk here is that you have to make sure you're not seduced by something which seems fascinating but can't go the distance. The first documentary I did for Background Briefing was a pretty weird one. Um, I'd like to play some for you now. It's called An Ill Wind and it was broadcast in 2013 about the proposal to build a massive new wind farm on King Island at a time when there were a lot of concerns that health, um, that wind farms made people sick. The matter has been resolved, according to a number of major reports from around the world. They all say there's no evidence that wind farms make people sick. But politicians are too afraid to stand by that which is giving oxygen to false and at times bizarre claims, according to Professor of Public Health, Simon Chapman. This is a disease in search of a cause, I think. Sarah Laurie believes that lips can quiver at up to 10 kilometres away from a turbine and that wind turbines can make a stationary car rock at up to one kilometre. I mean, these claims are absolutely preposterous. They're fairy stories. 
So you can see how enticing that story was for me at the start. I mean, in the wind farm debate, there were people telling the federal government that wind turbines caused bats to spontaneously explode in the air. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that story? Fortunately, given that in order to make that, I had to fly to a remote island for about a week, that story did have enough substance to sustain itself. But if I'm honest, I was first drawn to it because it was just so weird. Which brings me to the second stage and its risks. In the second stage, you have to actually plan out the story and what you, where you're going to go, who you can get on record, even if you're not 100% sure about that. And this involves a really good poker face. Also, the ability to create lots of plan Bs. Your editor will always want to know who you're going to interview. Um, and there is an unspoken understanding that stories change over time, but they still do have the right to hold you to what you promise in this stage. So you need to promise something really good, which you actually have a solid chance of delivering. And then I, I strongly recommend sketching out the story itself, however ridiculous it may seem when you have literally no one on the record, because this will come in handy later. The third stage can be the riskiest because it involves other real life people and what they want to do, not what you want to do. So assume you've convinced your editor to pay for you to go somewhere quite expensive and all of a sudden the talent clams up or says they don't want to do it anymore. This is a big stressful problem because of all the time you've already invested getting to this point and all the promises you've made. So this is where if you have multiple plan Bs in your back pocket, um, they can be very, very handy. In the past few months in Australia anyway, um, Rio Tinto's decision to blow up sacred caves at Jukun Gorge has created a massive, massive stink. But the reality is this has been going on in WA for decades. Five years ago, I did an investigation in Western Australia about the destruction of Aboriginal sacred sites. My story revealed how WA's state government quietly removed or blocked more than 1,000 sacred sites from the state's Aboriginal Heritage Register in just a couple of years. One of the traditional owners I interviewed was Kerry Robinson, a Maripikarinya elder. His country includes Port Hedland Harbour, which has been a major hub for the WA mining boom. So protecting Maripikarinya sacred sites has always been a really tough gig. Here, Kerry is talking about the Intha, or the sacred site, which is the harbour itself. So the heritage is still there. And uh, the Intha site has always been there for so many years. All our people died in there. They get buried there on the sand dunes, and I am the one of the persons who go there. And when any mining company goes and trenching around there, I go and see people's burial ground, the bones. You make sure that they don't disrespect the burial grounds. That's right. And you know, it makes me feel sad because the mining company wants to do what they want to do because they tell us there's nothing there, but we know there's something there. White man can tell us it's nothing there. We know it's there. That's what it means for our people. So I played you that clip to show you how important it was to hear from Kerry himself, a traditional owner who was author also authorised to explain the sacred nature of that site. But that interview almost didn't happen. I went all the way to Karatha, near the top of WA, did interviews, uh, and then the country was actually in flood, but I'd arranged to meet Kerry in Port Hedland, which is about two and a half hours away by car. So I drove alone in a car through floodwaters to get to Kerry, um, and I showed up at the house where we'd arranged to meet and there was absolutely no one there. I think there were like a couple of dogs. Um, so I just hung out there for a little while until someone showed up and I said, where's Kerry? And this woman said, Perth. And I was like, that's 17 and a half hours drive away. Um, so this is once again where Plan B comes in handy. Um, fortunately, I was flying out via Perth anyway, so I adjusted the time of that. And then to soak up time in Port Hedland, where I had nothing going on, um, I just walked around recording audio diaries of what I could see um, and how that might relate to my story and also explaining to the audience uh, how something had gone quite wrong and um, recording tracks to essentially tell the story if that was all I could do, if I didn't get carried or tell the story while I was in situ. Um, so plan B is very, very helpful. 
Luckily, when I got to Perth, I got hold of Kerry just before I had to get on a plane. So the fourth stage of telling a long-form story is what I like to call the I-know-nothing stage. Um, and there are definite risks here, and unfortunately, no one can manage them except for you. Um, this is when you've gathered all or most of your material, and there's probably quite a lot of it, and this is the time that your brain decides there is no truth, um, and so you sit there quietly panicking. And this is when you go back to the story you sketched out in stage two, however ridiculous it was, and you cling to it like a life raft, even though what you know now is vastly more than what you knew then. Often you'll find the early story sketch will help you write the real story, and it might even end up being exactly what the real story is. Um, and it's very important because you're so drowning in information at this point, what you need is a guide. The fifth stage, once you've gotten through the fourth stage, is publication, and that is definitely exciting depending on how battered you got by stages one to four. Quite often in the fifth stage, I end up going, oh, the story is what I thought it was at the start. How strange. Because you've come on such a journey with this idea, you're able to be actually surprised by yourself and what you end up doing. Then you publish, you completely forget about the trauma you've just been through, uh, and you decide it would be a great idea to do another long-form story. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. Um, I, uh, yeah, I think the the it's all in the forgetting. You've got to forget yeah. <laughs> so that you can turn around and do it do it again next time. Um, Have I a terrible, a really good memory. point. Um, <laughs> thanks, Eves, for joining us, Sarah. Pleasure. Um, and now our final provocation for today, um, which is from Marley, Marley Silva. I'm going to add her to the stream. Hi, Marley. Hello. Um, Marley just got off the radio, so she said, like, audio audio to the max today. Um, Marley is a 24-year-old Gamilaroi Dungati storyteller. She's the co-founder of Titters for Titters on Instagram. Um, I'm, you probably follow them already, but if you don't, go follow them. It's an incredible Instagram feed. And host of the podcast, Always Was, Always Will Be Our Stories. So take it away, Marley. Hi, great. Um, Yama, my name is Marley, as was just said, and... When, because I was just on the radio, I work at Triple J um, and sometimes present on there and we're doing Splendor in the Past at the moment. So when Jess Hamilton um, described herself as the uh, DJ in between um, acts, first of all, that was very bad underselling. Jess, you were absolutely amazing, as were was everyone um, before me. But now I feel like I'm the last of the night and you guys are already thinking about how to find your way back to your campsite um, or the long line of buses that you're about to um, line up for. So I will make it short and sharp and hopefully um, still interesting. Um, so my whole experience, um, you know, with podcasting and this world that I now exist in and um, the, the everything that I do from titters for titters uh, to now independently producing my podcast, I kind of fell into by accident and there it was only once receiving this prompt that I really thought about the risks that were involved there. Um, you know, so 18 months ago, uh, I'm a proud Gamilaroi and Dungati girl. Uh, my whole life I've been committed to, you know, talking about culture, advocating for my people, um, you know, and just expressing how proud I am um, in so, so many ways, um, you know, of, of who I am and where I've come from. Um, and it kind of came to a point in 2018 uh, when the NADOC theme that year was Because of Her We Can. We saw, um, you know, such an incredible focus on our Aboriginal women um, from throughout history. Our aunties, our grandmothers were, you know, getting the spotlight that they deserved uh, for the first time in a, in a really dedicated way. Um, and inspired by that and the fact that I was doing my honours research at the time around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women's um, representation on film and television, um, I, in my own brain, started to get really um, anxious about what would happen when 2018 finished. You know, who would keep telling these stories because there was so much out there, so many amazing women who hadn't had the chance to, um, you know, be spotlighted or who were coming out every day with a new amazing thing. So um, I sat on that for a little while, um, you know, spitballed a few ideas with my sister and eventually we came up with the idea of starting an Instagram page. Um, there was no kind of grand plan. We were just going to start this page uh, and tell the stories that mattered to us because no one else was doing it and that's the beauty of social media. Yeah, you can just kind of do it with no resources. Uh, so that's what we did. We launched Titters for Titters. Titter means sister, and it was all about our women and exist 
to be exactly that still today. Um, but now today, instead of it being just, you know, our mum kind of commenting on all the posts and our friends of ours liking and sharing, it's over 70,000 people who are a part of this journey. Um, 12 months ago, I didn't even really know what a podcast was. But I had this page and it caught the attention of the Mamma Mia network and specifically Mia Friedman herself. So one evening um, I received a message in my Instagram DMs from Mia herself asking me over for a cup of tea Um which, you know, was all very bizarre and I kind of was like, am I hallucinating? Like what's going on or am I being catfished? Um, but, you know, thankfully I wasn't and I took that first risk by going to meet with her um, and just trusting that it really was her. Thankfully it was. Um, and we had a conversation uh, about, you know, what I was doing and she asked me if I had had, you know, any plans for the future um, and I'd very smartly um, done my research into the Mamma Mia network and noticed their pretty extensive podcasting um, network and I happened to slip in there like maybe Titters for Titters could be a podcast, um, and, you know, taking that risk again and, you know, Mamma Mia took a risk on me by not only providing me with training and um, an introduction to the podcast world but um producing two seasons of a podcast uh, with me as the host and the main focus of it being uh aboriginal women so i got to sit down with some of the most amazing women from across the country um you know the likes of the australian human rights commissioner for aboriginal people dr june oscar um you know authors like tara june winch who's just won the miles franklin Franklin Award for her most recent novel. Incredible, incredible stuff. Um, and I, I got my start with them and was so grateful for it. But I also had this seed of it's not exactly what I want it to be um, living inside of me because with a big network like that, there's also pressure to have high profile guests or to be seeking um, sponsorships that are, you know, far too expensive for any kind of Aboriginal business to be able to, um, you know, be involved. And my in entire ethos is about leveraging um, space for my people. And I just felt like it wasn't at the, the right level that I needed it to be. So again, I got to the beginning of this year and after all this exponential growth on our page, also just, you know, the tools that I'd learned over, you know, coming out with these two seasons and the confidence that comes with that, um, I'd made the decision before COVID that this would be my last season with uh, Mamma Mia um, and the Titters for Titters uh, podcast would exist as those two seasons and I'd be done and I was going to start again. Um and I was a little bit scared, a little bit wary, um, you know, did I have the the power or the influence to do it on my own? Did I even know all the the technical bits about it? Um, what what was I missing? You know, I, how would I find a producer? All this sort of stuff was um, playing the back of my mind. So I sort of let it be, you know, something that future Mali would have to worry about. Then thankfully... <laughs> a global pandemic hits and all my work goes out the window of course like many of us have um had to face because another big risk that I took at the end of last year was quitting my full-time job to take on titters to titters and other creative projects as my um you know my whole career uh and it meant that I had a lot more space to stop you know thinking about that thing at the back of my mind and bringing it to the front. Um, so that was the the biggest risk that I've taken recently was to go, okay, well, I'm going to buy my USB mic, plug it into my computer, reach out to the amazing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women that I knew had a story to tell and slide into the DMs and start recording. So I recorded eight episodes in a week, um, you know, got some podcast artwork made up and just you know, played around on GarageBand um, to put it together. And and really quickly, you know, I released my first episode in the middle of Reconciliation Week in May and um, it was, you know, number six on the charts in Apple Music straight away and it was so incredible. And I guess my point, I've got two minutes to go and, and whenever I see things like that I start freaking out. But my main point of what I wanted to express is that, you know, looking back on all of that stuff, I had never thought of it as risk-taking at the time. And I think that's because I'm so driven by passion and I know that the greater risk is actually in not telling the stories that, are, that I'm telling, in not providing space for these amazing, um, you know, my amazing brothers and sisters 
to be championed, be heard and be supported. And I think that anyone who, no matter what story it is that you want to tell, can learn something from that. Um, It's, you know, so it's such a privilege to hear stories that, um, you know, have such power. And if if you really believe in what, um, you know, the stories you want to tell, you should, yeah, I think like a, a, the guests have said before, we need to rebrand, um, you know, risk-taking. It, it's not a re- The risk is so much greater to not tell the stories that haven't been heard, I think is the main point I wanted to get to here. Um, I feel like I've rambled a lot and gone off on a completely different tangent than I originally intended, but, um, you know, I am so proud to be able to tell the stories that I do and I think that everyone has that um, gem inside of them that, um, you know, there is space for and that other people are are really craving, especially at the moment, especially with what's happening across the world. Um, we want to hear this more diverse and um, engaging and exciting stories that can come from anyone and all I can say is I um, – have jumped with a leap of faith into a lot of things just um, without I was able to do that because I never got caught up on the what ifs and maybe that's because I'm maybe I'm a little bit arrogant or something but I I also knew that um, if I didn't do it I'd regret it um, because I of the opportunities that laid ahead of me and I'm going to cut myself off now because otherwise I won't stop talking but thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here, Marley. Um, I'm in the comments having a read of some of the things that people are saying. That was Patrick Abud, Jessica Hamilton, Renee Richardson, Sarah Dingle and Marley Silver giving provocations on the theme risk. A special thanks to our programming committee, Sana Kadar, Alex Mitchell, Camilla Hannon, Jennifer Wong and Tim Gray. If you liked this episode, I reckon you'll enjoy Small Acts of Reinvention, a conversation between Helen Zaltzman and Eleanor McDowell about pushing your existing podcast creatively, mixing things up as you work on something for a long time. Find us on social media at AudioCraftFest and sign up to our newsletter at audiocraft.com.au to keep in touch. Until next time.